0: chapter 1 of tolstoy this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by lee smalley tolstoy by l win stanley chapter 1 the most striking literary phenomenon of the 19th century is undoubtedly the rise into power and prominence of russian authors Some fifty years ago Russian literature was practically unknown to Western Europe. By the majority of people its very existence seems to have been unsuspected. We find even so great an adventurer as Carlyle, himself guiding his countrymen to many new tracts of literary discovery, speaking of the great silent Russians who are drilling a whole continent into obedience, but who have produced nothing articulate as yet. In less than thirty years from the time when Carlyle penned that sentence, Russian literature has become recognized as one of the most powerful and vital in Europe. Its influence already enormous increases every day. It is great in France, in Germany, in Scandinavia, even in conservative England. Hardly since the Renaissance has Europe beheld such a phenomenon, a literary advance at once so rapid and so great. The truth is that we have seen in Russia a growth very similar to that which occurred in Western Europe at the time of the Renaissance. In the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries Europe as a whole experienced the vivifying influence of two great literatures, Greek and Latin, and it had, at the same time, a mode of life to depict, and ideas of life to express, which differed widely from those of the classical nations the great models showed them the fascination of poetry and art and stimulated them to production the different conditions of life the varying ideals prevented their production from becoming a mere imitation and made it new significant and vital something very similar has occurred in modern russia russia has had the stimulus of western europe especially of england and france but at the same time the conditions of its life are so powerfully individual, so exceedingly unlike those of England and France, that its authors are hardly even tempted to produce work which is a mere imitation. As soon as they observe at all, the result of their observations is bound to be different. Their production is thus distinctive and individual, and, in its own turn, reacts upon the literatures which first inspired it. The chief literary form in the later nineteenth century has been the psychological novel, and it is this which the Russians have taken up, developed, and almost recreated. In psychology, Russian writers are greatly helped by their own exceeding truthfulness and candor. France and England are lands of complex civilizations, of many social grades and many conventions, and the mental attitude of their writers is, almost inevitably, conventional, and thus, to a certain extent, insincere. Russian life has far fewer social grades, and far fewer conventions. Russian writers are, beyond comparison, more candid with themselves and with others. They speak the exact truth, with a naïveté almost resembling the naïveté of children, but with the far-reaching intelligence of maturity this invaluable quality of sincerity is found in all the greatest russians tolstoy and dostoevsky in especial hide nothing but reproduce all they know with an absence of self-consciousness that amazes even while it fascinates we all of us know in our hearts that this profound sincerity is essential to really great literature but none the less we in a variety of ways discourage and forbid it in prudish england an author is always afraid of offending moral prejudices in france writers though in moral respects far freer are most sensitively afraid of appearing ridiculous or absurd to a russian neither of these fears would seem to exist Throughout his work Tolstoy insists with the most vehement intensity that absolute truthfulness, in all respects, is the essential foundation of morals, and nothing angers him more than concealment, which he declares to be, always and everywhere, the assistant and protector of vice, while the fear of being absurd he dismisses as one of the most ridiculous vanities of adolescence, unworthy of a sane man. Another quality that greatly assists Russian writers is their unique gift of sympathy. There may be, probably there is, something in the very fibre of the race essentially feminine and sensitive, but the peculiar conditions of their government account for much. Russia is the nation which, above all other great nations in our days, has the most tragic destiny, suffers most deeply and undeservedly, it is probably this which helps to give her great writers so deep a compassion. They penetrate to the very foundation of human experience, they fathom the deepest abysses of human suffering, and they return with an unequalled tenderness, with a noble beauty of compassion, which has, in the modern world, no rival at all. It is worthy of note that the ancient Greeks would appear to have gained in a similar way some of the greatest qualities in their national soul. They too had the experience of a deep suffering. They stood between east and west, they bore the brunt of long-lasting racial conflicts, and when they finally emerged triumphant, they carried with them the beautiful fruit of that bitter experience, in their profound understanding of human suffering, and their knowledge of all the depths of tragedy. They too gained from their own anguish a unique tenderness and compassion. Priam kissing the hands of Achilles, terrible man-slaying they had slain so many of his sons, is one of the world's supreme types of pathos. This lovely tenderness illumines all the great Greek poetry, from Homer to Euripides. Latin literature, in comparison with the Greek, is wanting both in compassion and in depth, but the Romans had never in the same way suffered, and they knew less of the secrets of the human soul. Tolstoy, we are told, read much in Homer and was greatly influenced by him in writing his War and Peace. It is hardly surprising, for, notwithstanding all differences, there is a considerable similarity, the two are alike in their heroism, in their understanding of war, their vast and crowded canvas, their tragic view of human destiny, and their lovely compassion. It is characteristic of the Russian breadth of mind and elemental sincerity that Tolstoy really can take Homer as his model in writing a modern novel. It is hardly necessary to remark that he has not Homer's sense of beauty, but who in this modern world has? The fecundity of Russian literature is very great. It is a great mistake to regard Tolstoy as if he stood alone. Like Shakespeare, Tolstoy is only the highest peak, or perhaps we should say the greatest magnitude, among a number of writers only less distinguished than himself. Among Tolstoy's predecessors the Russians themselves rank Gogol very high. He owes much to the influence of Dickens. His books show endless comic verve, are crowded with situations full of laughter, but at the same time he has, in general, a very serious purpose behind. Gogol, though humane and good-tempered, is a keen satirist, comparatively little known abroad. He is greatly loved by Russians themselves. Among Tolstoy's leading contemporaries, the man whom, above all others, he most wholeheartedly admired, was Feodor Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky had a tragic history, which is reflected in his works. He was involved in the plots of the Decembrists, condemned to execution, and only at the last moment reprieved for the remainder of his life, possibly in consequence of the shock to his nervous system, he became an epileptic, he was exiled for a time to Siberia. Dostoevsky's books are largely studies in crime, but quite unlike those familiar to our modern press. The modern detective story, with its police court atmosphere and its vulgar shallowness of interest, belongs to a world immeasurably beneath Dostoevsky even the world of tragic crime, depicted so forcibly by the Elizabethans, stands far apart from his. In Elizabethan dramas, crime is observed for the sake of its passion, it is invested with a terrible though gloomy allurement, and its end is the ruin of the noblest or the tragic destruction of a human soul. Dostoevsky's novels of crime are really studies in redemption in crime and punishment the hero is a murderer and the heroine a fallen woman but both ultimately work out their salvation to dostoevsky crime is a moral disease a source of the most exquisite suffering to the soul he studies the process by which the soul sick to death and horribly distressed purifies and cleanses itself dostoevsky is not like the elizabethans impressed by the tragic beauty of crime on the contrary he realises and makes us realise its loathsomeness, its sordid horror. But, notwithstanding its dark and gloomy setting, his work is in essence far from pessimistic. The expiatory power of suffering, the innate nobility of the human soul, the miserable meanness of sin, the beauty of compassion, these are the impressions which he prints most deeply in the mind the nearest western parallel is to be found no doubt in victor hugo's les miserables where the redemption of a human soul is in somewhat similar method described but victor hugo does not penetrate to the foundations of human life in the same manner as dostoevsky he the petted idol of the french public had not that first-hand acquaintance with the terrible realities of oppression there is something theatrical and rhetorical, almost insincere, about Hugo, if we compare him with the great Russian. It is worthy of observation that Tolstoy greatly admired both Les Miserables and Dostoevsky. The older he grew and the more powerfully the influence of the latter became manifest, his sympathy with the oppressed, his interest in redemption, increased, until in the last of his great novels, Resurrection, we find that he writes in the very spirit of dostoevsky his heroine goes down to the depths of shame and degradation and yet is redeemed and restored the pessimist may perhaps declare that both tolstoy and dostoevsky are mistaken in thinking that a human being can sink so low and yet be redeemed to which it can only be replied that the unflinching courage with which they face realities all realities however horrible and sordid earns them their right to be believed when they assert the restorative power of purity and love. Amid all Tolstoy's contemporaries, the one most widely appreciated in Europe is, without doubt, Turgenev. He was understood early, and more readily than his fellow-countrymen, this appreciation being no doubt due to the fact that there is more foreign influence in his work, and that he is less purely Russian. Turgenev owes much to French literature. The influence of its clarity of style, its artistic form, its sense of proportion, are evident throughout his writing. He is the most artistic and literary of Russian authors, but, strong as the French influence is in his work, no one could ever mistake him for a Frenchman. He has the depth and tenderness of the Slavonic temperament, its moral earnestness, its profound sincerity. Turgenev and Tolstoy were exceedingly unlike in life and work. It is not surprising that, when they met, they were alternately fascinated and repelled. Turgenev complained that Tolstoy pursued him like a woman in love, and yet, when they were together, was always quarrelling with him. At one time they were devoted friends, at another they came near to fighting a duel. Russia might well have been horrified by the spectacle of her two greatest men of genius destroying each other. Their friends intervened and separated them, but the reconciliation was never quite complete. The same opposition of personality can be plainly perceived in their work. Tolstoy is by far the more masculine genius, enormous in his vitality and power, immense in his canvases, He loves, in his early work especially, to study masculine and virile characters, to dwell on war and hunting, and all the vigorous activities of men. His heroines, charming as they often are, are rarely or never heroic. They are nearly always dominated by their own emotions, they yield only too thoroughly to the men who, with a cruel masculine egoism, at once love and destroy them. Again, it is hardly until he reaches resurrection that he shows a true sense of the value of women as individuals. In his earlier novels he consents to value them only in their maternal aspect, as the mothers of men. His conception of love is nearly always a masculine passion with, it must be acknowledged, a somewhat crude masculinity. It is a disturbance of the senses rather than an emotion of the soul. Plato would have classed it unquestioningly as born of the lower Aphrodite. And Tolstoy's finest heroes nearly always yield to it reluctantly and, as it were, churlishly. Like another great masculine genius, Milton, Tolstoy feels most intimately, but shudders at the power that women possess over men. How often in his works one meets with women who are like Milton's Dalila! possessed of a charm that is mixed with loathing and disgust. Both Milton and Tolstoy regard with horror, as one of the worst of snares, the idealising power of love. Turjenev is very different. He has not Tolstoy's enormous vitality, nor his immense scope. His novels are, in comparison, quite brief, and some of his best work is done in a very small compass, though it is always so deep in meaning, that it never seems slight, he has achieved nothing more perfect than the little story of Faust, which might, so far as length goes, be only a French phaeton. He is always and essentially poetic, one of the keenest of all human observers. He dislikes sordid realism. He avoids war and all other forms of extreme violence. It is quite characteristic of him that when he does, for once, choose a soldier hero, Insarov in On the Eve, He does not accompany him to war, but makes him die of consumption before the conflict actually begins. Love plays a far larger part in his work than in that of Tolstoy, and it is an altogether nobler kind of love. As a lover, indeed, he belongs to the great poetic idealists. He is of the same race as Dante, as Shakespeare, as Shelley. He understands quite as well as Tolstoy the dreadful glamour of an evil passion he understands how it leads to atrophy of the heart, to desolation and to ruin. But he understands also, that nobler passion, whose very existence Tolstoy explicitly and vehemently denies, the love which belongs both to the senses and to the soul. Passion in Tolstoy is always a concession to the animal in man. In Turgenev, it is often his redemption. It follows from this, that he understands women far better than Tolstoy, Indeed, Turgenev lays his main stress on feminine rather than on masculine character. And the most heroic and beautiful figures in his pages are usually those of women. He draws them, indeed, with a Shakespearean strength and delicacy. He does not regret the influence they have over man's life. It is so often for good. Even when he draws the destructive siren who lures men to their doom, he draws her without the Tolstoyan frenzy of hate he gives her the same kind of charm that Shakespeare gave Cleopatra, and permits her poetry to fascinate, even while he shows with the clearest irony, all her sensuality and her falseness. It is worthy of note that neither Tolstoy nor Turgenev wholly escape from the influence of their rank. Widely democratic as they are in sympathies, yet they betray their aristocratic birth. Tolstoy in the wrath and anger, the almost satanic fury he turns upon those with whom he happens to disagree, and Turgenev in the fastidious delicacy with which he loves the beautiful, the distinguished and the rare. It is Dostoevsky who is truly the man of the people. He sees through all the cheats of power, but he hates no one. He loves purity and beauty, but he finds them even in the foulest prisons and the lowest slums. Of the three, he is the truest democrat. End of chapter one.